I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Linda Carducci, and we're diving into one of the biggest and most dramatic subjects possible, opera. We go back in time to explore the different musical characteristics of opera as it evolved over four centuries. So get comfortable as we go on a journey and show you what to listen for in each era, define some terms, and give you listening recommendations along the way. I'm really glad we're talking about opera today, Linda, because, well, one, the Met Opera Saturday matinee broadcast, they're about to return. Mm -hmm. And also, I'm just feeling a little bit dramatic today. So this (laughs) is a good time. Then opera is your your mainstay today. Yes. Now, you may remember in the last episode we did together, Linda, we were showcasing and defining the nocturne, and I was able to succinctly and quite beautifully, actually, if I may so myself, at the beginning, really just define it. We could have stopped after a minute. So I want to give you a chance as well. So now it's your turn, Linda. Please just define for us in a sentence, um, opera. Opera, the Italian word for work with music. It is an art form that tells a story through music and singing, either comedic or dramatic or sometimes a combination of both, thanks to Mozart. Okay, well, yes, you, you did a lot better than I expected. I was hoping to trip you up there. That was more than one sentence, but that's that's really great. Art form that tells a story through music and singing. And, of course, we're going to go into it more than that. It contains things like arias, which are solo numbers, kind of like a song showcasing a singer. There's recitatives, which are sing-talking portions, depicting things like uh, dialogues and also monologues chorus numbers as well and I guess we know in Italian I never thought about it actually Linda opera itself means work with music correct it's uh, similar to the word opus which means work ah okay so we are going to go back in time to five different musical time periods since opera arrived we're going to see how it sounded through these times how it evolved and give you a listening recommendation for each era while defining some of the opera terms along the way but before we start here i want to put some of this into context or set expectations linda yesterday i just typed into google history of opera I thought with such a basic query, you know, what can I find? Am I missing something? I want to see, you know, what, where are my blind spots, so to speak, with this subject? The first link was a, a thing to Wikipedia, history of opera. And at the top, there's, a, you know, a note from Wikipedia. It says, this page is way too long. It is <laughs> difficult to read. It is difficult to navigate. It needs this cleaned up. It's the longest entry I have ever seen. There's over 700 references. I mean, it was. it's almost comical. This is, we're talking centuries of music, of politics, of culture and life. And for that reason, it can be intimidating to people, especially if they are not initiated into opera. And I totally get that. But that's what we're here for today, to explain to you and to put down into rather simple forms and categories what opera is. And I think that you'll come away, once you understand just the basics of it, with the same understanding that people who love it for years have, and that is that it's a very thrilling experience. Absolutely. Okay, I've got the time machine fired up, Linda. It runs on the tiers of mean music critics, so we can go pretty much anywhere. We have all the fuel we need. Snacks are packed. (laughs) What should we listen to on the way? How about this? No? Yeah. Or maybe this? (laughs) Now I know you'd love this. (laughs) Now that's a tune everyone recognizes. Okay, so we're in our time machine, and we are off. 
Okay, Linda, where and when are we? We land in Italy right now, in Florence in the 16th century. And as I mentioned, Italy is the birthplace of opera. There was a composer named Jacobo Perry, who we think wrote the first opera in 1597. Again, we can go back to our definition of opera, which is uh, an art form that tells a story through music. So this started as early as the 16th century. And the first one from 1597, it was called Daphne by Perry. And that's, well, been lost, not uh, too surprisingly. But in 1600, we have what might be the, what many consider to be the first earliest surviving opera, Eurydice, also by Jacopo Perry. And it was written for the marriage of King Henry IV. And I imagine, Linda, the king enjoyed seeing himself as a hero in music uh, while at his wedding, too, because these are some heroic themes early on. Yes, and we start to see this theme of using uh, heroes and mythological characters Mm -hmm. in Renaissance and Baroque opera. Like Greek and um, Roman and stuff like that? Yes, correct. So it was Perry who helped start this form. He included some aria moments, uh, recitative moments, the songs and dialogue portion, which we're going to get into um, more. And it was Claudio Monteverdi a few years later who took what Perry was doing and just elevated the entire genre. And I think this is how you find, well, how most things kind of develop. Someone invents it. It's kind of a little rough around the edges. And then someone else sees it and, and really runs with it. And that's what Monteverdi does when, in 1607 with his opera. L'Orfeo. And that's another plot you see often of uh, Orfeo and Eurydice. Right, Eurydice is in the She Dies. Orfeo wants to rescue his beloved. He goes down into the underworld and his beautiful voice will, will rescue her. Part of the um, mythology here. But I want to mention here, Linda, something so interesting. A court official in a letter just before the premiere of L'Orfeo wrote this. They said, tomorrow evening, the most serene lord the prince is to sponsor a play in a room in the apartments which the most serene lady had the use of. It should be most unusual, as all the actors are to sing their parts. (laughs) That's interesting. We're seeing it described by someone who is maybe kind of describing it for the first time. This is unusual. There's going to be, they're going to sing it. I don't know. To me, it sounds like. It's there's a nonchalance to it, like, hey, you want to go through a rocks in the quarry this weekend, kind of thing. It's just interesting. <laughs> it is. We consider that there were spoken plays prior to this, mm-hmm. earlier than this, but this is a combination now of of adding music to uh, to a play. So it's the early 1600s. Perry invents it. Monteverdi elevates it more, and we can say that well, these are not things that the average person is enjoying. It's for the wealthy, the connected, the royal. And then in 1637, Linda, I see the first public opera house comes to be, and um, this is in Venice, right? Yes. It was still pretty much um, relegated to uh, to, to royalty mm-hmm. and noble people and, and wealthy people who would attend opera at this point. It became a little bit more democratic later on during Handel's era and, mm-hmm. era and certainly during Mozart's era. Ah, okay. So it's also, well, of course, the royalty, the government that is also funding these things. And as we'll discover, these are very expensive propositions, opera, that is. So what are some of the characteristics and style of this late Renaissance, early Baroque period that we're in? What What's the defining kind of characteristics? Well, we can look to instrumental music during this era that is very similar to the kind of opera um, elements. For example, there's purity of 
of texture and sound, particularly Renaissance and early Baroque, smaller orchestration, um, simple arias. There were there was some polyphony, and there was um, an increase in improvisation. Okay. By the musicians. So there's a little bit of improvisation. I think we hear that a lot in the accompaniment polyphony where there's multiple voices doing lines at the same time. Really, when you hear it and it sounds small, or if you hear recorders playing, that's also a dead giveaway. This is an older opera, and it's much more intimate because, well, they're not playing on a huge stage, right? These are small kind of intimate performances. Yes. So if we look at Verdi's, for example, uh, orchestration and singing that came much later, he had grand orchestra, big singers, chorus movements, moments. We don't, we don't hear that here. This is a smaller in texture, smaller in size. And mythological subjects. And I also see sometimes a singer will have multiple roles. They're singing in the prologue, maybe uh, the god of Jupiter. Then there are another role in the, the very next thing. Yes. And we also want to mention that women have been writing operas, well, basically from the beginning. Francesca Caccini's opera in 1625 was called La Liberazione di Ruggiero. Again, if I can even pronounce that correctly. But women have been writing operas, and we'll mention them. But as we've learned in many recent episodes, a lot of works by women have been um, lost uh, or destroyed. Even opera written 50 years ago by um, composer Germaine Taifer is mm-hmm. just totally lost, you know, even within our own um, lifetimes. Is there anything in the music that is kind of designated for specific characters or scenes, kind of like typecast or maybe stereotypes we can find? Yes, especially in the Monteverdi um, instrumentations, we can find groups of instruments that were specifically designated for specific characters or specific scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, this is almost an analogy to what we see many, many years later in the 19th century with Richard Wagner and his leitmotif um, use, mm-hmm. that certain um, musical ideas represented ideas or, or people or things. Okay, so kind of like when we hear a droning sound, that might be a, a pastoral scene, maybe mm-hmm. something like um, a shepherd or something. Yes, or trumpets, we might know that uh, the great god Jupiter is coming. Ah, okay. Get out of the way. I guess, what can we recommend specifically for people to listen to an opera and um, an aria? Well, as you mentioned, the Lorfeo legend, which is the Orpheus legend, is is very popular, and that was a theme that was used by a number of, of composers, including Gluck a little bit later on. Monteverdi's notable opera is um, Lorfeo, which is very beautiful, mm-hmm. or the coronation of Popea. And uh, there's there's a gorgeous, pure duet that mm-hmm. concludes the opera where all of the drama is finally settled and Popea and her, her husband are sort of singing a love duet. And it's mm-hmm. very pure and beautiful. Okay, this is pure Timiro, pure Tigoto? See. Oh, see. This this is so beautiful. It is it's oh, it captures you from the beginning too. And when you do listen to it, listen to how intimate and pure it is. There's not a lot of orchestration going on here. No. And I would have loved to have been at a performance because I imagine you would have been quite close to the action. You know, there's you're probably not a lot of distance between you and the in the music. Yes. And it's a nice way to end a very dramatic work where there's a struggle for power. Finally it all ends, everything settles, and the two lovers are saying, I gaze at you, I desire you. Mm, happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Let's get back in our time machine now, Linda. We'll go to later into the Baroque period. All right. We've just been transformed now to the Baroque era of 1600 to 1750. This is quite a span. We're talking about 150 years. It sounds like opera started to really take hold. It's in Italy. It's gaining footing with an opera house coming into fruition. What's happening here in this era in terms of that development? It's becoming a little bit more popular and a more, a little more democratic in, in its audience, as we discussed earlier. There are some innovations, too, going on in how they were structured. Slightly larger orchestration and um, a little bit more ornamentation now with, with the singers. Its popularity was starting to spread outside of Italy as well to various regions of Europe. Okay. So it seems like we have a natural progression here, as we see in, well, other forms in music. There's more instruments. As more instruments are made and composers include more as they become more comfortable with this form, the singers, that their technique and their training, that gets better. So now they're able to do more difficult arias and more maybe difficult um, kind of turns and ornamentations um, in the music. Yes, and uh, as we'll see as we go through the, the various uh, eras of, of opera, things grow. The art form grows, it gets larger, it expands, it gets uh, more experimental. Mm. I think a good way to, in a way I often think of this, is also with movies. And we think about how you know that's developed and changed from the first moving pictures to what we're, what we're doing now. I think we see a lot of um, corollaries there. And it spreads to out of Italy into other parts of Europe. I imagine this is also because traveling becomes more commonplace with an increase in technology, transporting things more cooperation between, I don't know, governments or something like that. I imagine all of that mm -hmm. comes into play here with its spread through Europe. Actually, you know, Handel, for example, a German, uh, went to Italy and he became immersed in the Italian style of opera while he was in Italy, learned, learned Italian, mm. and then took it to London. And he presented Italian style opera to London and was hugely successful there. Wow. Something I've been meaning to ask Linda is, do we need to know what they are singing to fully enjoy this because it can be hard to understand even if it's in your native language or like for us English. When you go to an opera today, they often have surtitles projected above the stage so you can see what is happening. You can read the text as it's being sung. But not being able to understand the words isn't always a bad thing either. I mean, how many of us have songs on the radio or whatever you, you kind of mumble through a part and then you get to the chorus and you're singing? That's true. And, and I think sometimes it helps to know before you start listening to it, what in general is going on in each act. So if you sort of understand, well, there's going to be a struggle here or mm -hmm. there's going to be a reconciliation here. If you understand that going into each act and you read maybe a little bit summary, which are available all over the place, I think then you can better understand and, and appreciate what's going on. But there's also librettis. Those are word-for-word -word translations into English. And you can find librettos for every opera. Online, for example, they're, 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 they're there online. You can buy them relatively inexpensively, mm -hmm. too. Word-for-word -word translations. So, for example, as you're listening to opera on WETA Classical every Saturday afternoon, and maybe you don't understand what they're saying in Russian— if you have the libretto in front of you, you can certainly follow along. And it's more meaningful that way, I think. That's a great point. And let's talk about libretto or libretti, multiple, multiples of them mm -hmm. for a second, because 
this is what composers like Monteverdi and like Handel, this is what they're doing. They're taking text that already exists, like a play or later on, especially a novel or also early on poetry. And that text is adapted usually by someone to be used for opera. It's not the composer writing the words themselves, right? So the right. libretto is just the text, not the music. Correct. Wagner will write his own libretto when we when we get to that. Yes. Um, but in 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 Renaissance era, as you say, sometimes the music was set to poetry. Mm-hmm. When we get to Handel, we're starting to see a little bit more of a natural dialogue now between the the uh, characters. And what about the characteristics here and the style? To me, it feels direct. the The energy feels more palpable. Like they're the composers are willing to be a little bit more direct in the dramaticism with it. Oh, yes, and you can you can see that in so many of Baroque arias, uh, including the rage arias, where, where people are really speaking out in, in, with great emotion and great passion about something. And there's also arias that are, that are very tender, uh, you know, more human, a little bit more natural than just, say, the poetry that we heard, say, in the Renaissance era. Slowly moving away from the mythological kind of epic poems. Yes, we are. However, what's important to remember about this particular era is that mostly it was opera seria. Serious and dramatic, not so comedic. Correct. Opera seria was was typically based on heroic characters, mythological characters, and there was often a very moral theme Mm-hmm. that was presented in these. So opera seria was very popular during the Baroque era, but we'll see it also during the era of Mozart. Okay. Another defining characteristic seems to be basso continuo, mm-hmm. and this is the accompaniment, and it's usually made up of something like a keyboard, like a harpsichord, and then a lower-sounding instrument like cello or maybe more viola da gamba, kind of a cello with um, frets, I think, at the time. And this would include improvisation. It's kind of daunting for people today because what was written down for this basso continuo, the accompaniment, would just be one note. Yes. And then shorthand of numbers or sometimes symbols. And from that, you have to improvise and and do everything. So just that note and then a couple of numbers will give you the idea of the harmony, but it's up for you to fill it all in. That's why all the recordings sound different for the same piece sometimes. Yes, you're right. And the same opera, say it would travel from, say, Venice to Florence, same opera might be presented different. You may hear a different version when you mm-hmm. when you uh, hear those those two different things. As you said, the Basco Continuo is the harmony, and um, it's it's providing a, the lower pitch, the, usually the bass. But the instrumentalist is expected to be a pretty good musician mm-hmm. and be able to understand harmony and be able to fill it in himself. They actually made us do this in school. Mm. We had to learn how to read figured bass and this mm. kind of stuff, yes. and it was just. You, you could go as slow as you wanted. I would go slow. You just had to you had to show you know what you're kind of doing. But yeah, you have to sit there and you know and go through these chord progressions just using the numbers and um, it's it provides a very beautiful sound in the end. It does, and it requires skill. Yes, it requires a lot of um, skill. Also, recitatives, that portion where it sounds kind of like sing talking, this seems to be really clearly defined. In this era, we have, you know, it's a very definite beginning and end to a lot of these things. And the sound is very distinct of recitatives. I think it's something you can pick up on pretty quickly. 
Yeah, the recitatives will break up the, the arias, for example. So maybe two people will be speaking to each other, and it almost sounds like they're speaking, but they're attaching pitches to their speech. But they're having sort of a conversation. Sometimes, though, uh, that we'll see in, for example, Mozart operas, and, and I think Handel too, some of the uh, characters may be doing a monologue. They're thinking out loud, and we want the we, we want the audience to understand what the thought process is of that character. And he's, so he's speaking out loud, but he's attaching pitches to his speech. Okay, now. We've mentioned Handel a bunch, and actually it's 1724, Linda. We're all dressed and ready to go to the opera. So let's go to Handel's premiere of Giulio Cesare in Egito. This is Caesar in Egypt. Mm -hmm. This was a, a big hit and I guess a big example of what you were talking about with opera Syria. Yes, so he's working with the Julius Caesar theme here. Uh, again, opera seria that is serious, has a moral theme, and we, we the, the audience, are looking at heroic characters who are going to teach us a moral theme. There's still a moral theme, and even here we're dealing with a subject matter from you know a long time ago, Caesar in Egypt. Moral themes still very big in opera, and of course, as we know, like in 90s sitcoms, you know, little English horn moments in Full House <laughs> or something. Yes. Another very defining characteristic of this time period um, in the 1710s, 20s, 30s is the use of castrati, male singers who were castrated as boys to preserve their soprano voices. Yes, this was done purposefully. Uh, sometimes, you know, the parents would approve of it, thinking that this this young boy would go on to be a great singer. They were the first operatic stars of the of the 1720s. Um, we hear it in Handel. We hear it in music of, of that era. It started to die out a little bit late, later on. But um, they were singing male parts. But back then, back during the, the Handel era, um, sometimes the heroes of the plays, you know, the, the, of the operas, the main character, the main heroic male character was a castrati, was a, was a high-pitched voice. Yes. All, almost reminds me of like Peter Pan, you know, in plays yeah. where that, that's a similar um, thing. Right. So these were, they were huge operatic stars. And it seemed like if you wanted a big hit with your opera, you had to include a role like this. Now, male sopranos, although kind of rare, they still exist today, kind of like you think of the women who were singing the bass parts in Vivaldi's school. But thankfully today, they're just people with high voices like Samuel uh, Mourinho and Elijah McCormick. Well, we certainly enjoyed Handel's opera premiere of uh, Caesar in Egypt, but what are some other composers at this time, in this time period. Antonio Vivaldi's one, for sure. He wrote a lot of operas. Yes. And also, he started a little bit later, and it was also, it was almost scandalous for him to be composing operas as someone who was a former priest. It was seen a little unseemly. Yes, it was, yeah. Um, but uh, if we travel a little bit north to, to France, France was very uh, important for opera during this era, mm -hmm. specifically uh, Jean-Baptiste Lully. He was very influential on, on other composers and transformed opera into an art form in Paris, um, performed for royalty. This was during the reign of uh, Louis XIV. Right after Lully, just, just a little bit after Lully, was uh, Jean-Philippe Rameau, who also composed many opera ballets for French royalty. His operas are still performed today. Yes, and they included big ballet segments. 
So Handel, Vivaldi, the French with Jean-Philippe Rameau mm-hmm. and Jean-Baptiste Lully, also another composer, Elizabeth Jacquette de la Guerre in 1694. She had her opera, Cephale et Procris. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing some of these things, but um, my French isn't that great, sorry. But it's exploding in this time as a very still definite type of sound. And now what is an opera and aria we can recommend? from this time period. I have a particular um, fondness for the opera Rotolinda by George Friedrich Handel. Mm-hmm. That's one in which uh, the the main hero is um, a very high, high-pitched voice. Mm-hmm. But um, the soprano sings a gorgeous aria called Mio Caro Bene. Mm. So I would recommend that from the opera Rotolinda by George Friedrich Handel, which is still performed today, including at the Met. It's a beautiful opera. Also, Giulio Cesare, as you said, that was an important opera for Handel. Piangelo la sorte mia, beautiful aria for soprano. Absolutely beautiful, Linda. Okay, so we've learned some things about the Baroque time period, the basso continuo, the castrati, opera seria. So let's get back in the time machine, Uh, Linda. Maybe we can head to Vienna, 1779. We've now been transported to the era of Mozart. Yes, this is what we call the classical period. I mean, these are rough timelines. About 50 years, 1750 to 1800. And it sounds like, well, like a lot of things, we see even more development and expansion of the genre in this time period quickly, too. Yes, and it it sort of mirrored the development of music, instrumental music, Mm -hmm. not just for opera. So what that means is we're getting away from the ornamentation and the sort of complexity and density of Baroque music now, Mm -hmm. and we're going toward the classical ideal of simplicity, form, Um, Mm -hmm. and style that is a little bit more refined, shall we say, and simple. Yeah, refined and simple is a good way to describe it. I think it's like the Baroque music is, you know, the hair is all kind of, you know, all over the place and messy, and someone took a comb and just straightened everything out real quick. (laughs) And we kind of get, that gives us this classical, refined type of sound. And as it grows more, we see even more kind of stereotypes and, and tropes coming into into the music. And we also start to see more common people slowly filling up these concert halls. Yes. And the evolution from um, opera seria, that is, again, serious opera where there was a moral theme and we have heroes and mythological characters. Very highbrow. High, very highbrow. Now to the growth of opera buffa. which is more comic opera that uh, features real-life people. And sometimes they're even poking fun at royalty a little bit like that. And, and Mozart was very good at that, and so was Rossini. So we've gone from the, the gods and the myths down to seeing ourselves almost in, in, in the, on these opera stages. Yes. And the, the royalty, the government, they, they allow a little bit of poking fun at themselves. Yes. They're also the ones paying for this too, right, still? <laughs> Probably government funding, yeah. But I should emphasize, too, that it wasn't just opera buffa during this era. There was still opera seria, and if we look at Mozart's operas um, up until, say, I don't know, Così Fintute or something like that, we we are still seeing some opera seria, and like Idomeneo, for example, 
was still based on, on old mythical themes. The transition that we're starting to see in the 18th century didn't happen overnight from Baroque. Right. As anything, music evolved. And looking at the characteristics and style, we've already described somehow it's, you know, it's kind of refined. It's a little cleaned up, less extravagant. One thing that really takes off in this time period, Linda, I think, are the overtures to these operas. And beforehand, it was often just, you know, one or two minutes of music, something slow, fast, slow, or fast, slow, fast. And um, centuries passed, and then, well, the opera would start. Now we get longer overtures, and we start to see some more importance added to them. They start including themes from the opera. So you kind of get a taste. Ooh, you know, this is the kind of sound. That sounds like maybe a scary character. That sounds like the um, the romantic hero in the music. And it's just fun to see that all um, all put in there. And the overture was not just, um, a, you know, sort of a musical introduction to, you know, to, to, to the work in general. You know, mm-hmm. to, audience, take your seats. Here's the music. Just, it introduces it. As you say, the overture became more important because it did incorporate some themes from from the operas themselves, but it also set the tone. So if we listen to, for example, the opera or the overture to Mozart's Don Giovanni, it has that real dark, you know, deep, tragic almost um, beginning to it because that's what eventually happens at the end. Yeah. But if you listen to the overture to Marriage of Figaro, which is a comedy, mm-hmm. the overture is full of, of humor. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's setting those expectations. We still see this less today, but you think of the film industry, uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, a big overture Mm -hmm. with themes from the movie showing you landscape and the idea that the surroundings that you're about to see uh, a movie take place. And I think there's, you know, we still see this um, happening now. I I think even if if any of our listeners decide they don't want to listen to opera, I would suggest that they just listen to Mozart's Marriage of Figaro overture, just the overture by Mm -hmm. itself, because that is a work of genius. And we see characters in the music almost grow to um, frightening, exaggerated forms. In Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute, there is the queen of the night, and she's quite terrifying. And we also see, as we saw in earlier periods, things get a little bit harder, they get a little bit more challenging. Now we're almost off the rails with how difficult some of these arias are, especially this big Queen of the Night aria in um, Mozart's um, Magic Flute. And Linda, this opera itself is actually in German. So we've seen Italian, we've seen French, which seem to be pretty romantic, you know, artsy languages. Now we're hearing it in German. Was that a natural evolution? I mean, did some say, no, we shouldn't be singing in German? I don't think that was typical during the 18th century. Uh, Mozart did write the Magic Flute with the German text because it was written as almost a, as a play, as a Zingspiel, which is um, a play opera slash opera that had some spoken German dialogue in it. Mm-hmm. And it was for a popular theater. It was not necessarily for the refined opera audiences. Still, it became a very important uh, opera for Mozart, very successful for him. And to this day, it's very successful. I think the Met is going to be doing two two versions of, of the Magic Flute coming up. But you're right. It is with a German text. I still think, though, that most of the opera during this period, at least in, in Italy and in Germany, was still in Italian. And there was a lot of influence 
speaking of the magic flute, um, the Age of Enlightenment at this time as well. Yes, which focused on human happiness now, human liberty and human reason, less dependence on religion to explain things, uh, less religion, uh, less emphasis that is on nobility and superstition. Now we're starting to get a little bit more of an educated audience and um, an interest in expanding one's human um, life. Ah, I heard coffee had a big role in that as well. Coffee allowed people, when they were, you were more stimulated, you stayed up later. I think people just got a lot more work done, maybe. Beethoven certainly did. Yes. We also see the recitative get some development as well. Now, we've already kind of uh, defined that in that kind of familiar sound you get with the harpsichord and something like a cello. Now we get another type of recitative, and this is where the orchestra is accompanying the, the singer themselves called um, recitative um, accompagnato. I can never say it in Italian. I just say accompanied recitative. And it's usually more droning in its sound. Uh, the orchestra is kind of sustaining a chord while the singer sings. And they also add punctuation as well in between mm-hmm. moments, which is um, similar to what we had before. It, this is also a very distinct sound. You notice when they're sort of sing-talking at, at one point. Yes, and Mozart will use harpsichord sometimes still, uh, along with orchestra, um, but you can still hear harpsichord sometimes with his rich chiefs. Mm-hmm. But they do serve a punctuation, and especially if the line is comedic, mm-hmm. Mozart will end it with a really cute little punctuation mark with a harpsichord that sort of emphasizes the humor. Mm, I'm sure that kind of generates some a little bit of laughter as well. Yeah, oh, definitely. Now, you would think all of this is great. Wow, we're getting more difficult, more instruments. We're expanding all these different things we've had so far. This is fantastic. But one composer, Christoph Willibald Gluck, he thought things had kind of gotten a little out of control, I guess. Yes. Gluck is known for his reforms to opera. He said, let's let's go back a little bit and focus on the humanity that is being presented in the, in the plot, the human drama. Mm-hmm. And he also felt that the text and the music were, were integral and of equal importance. So that when we present an opera, it should be a story being told musically, not simply a showcase for the singer's virtuosity, yes, as it was starting to be to get in the 18th century, and he would even write this into the score, like on the front page of the manuscript, or maybe the cover page on the inside. These ideals, you know, this is about the human drama, the the purity or the dedication to the text, and you know, not so over the top with these with the the singing. We'll start to see more reforms. Uh, specifically, Richard Wagner did that in the 18th century or 19th century. Mm-hmm. And there's another type of opera coming into fruition here, and it sounds kind of silly. Bel canto, mm-hmm. beautiful singing. Well, isn't this all beautiful singing? What, what are you talking about? You know, bel canto. But this is something a little bit different, right? Yes, and we can thank Giacchino Rossini for, for introducing um, bel canto, which means beautiful singing. It's a, a style of singing that emphasized elegance mm-hmm. with long, legato, flowing, lyrical lines. The emphasis was the beauty of sound mm. um, rather than expression or raging or giving an, uh, an idea. The, the idea was to present a beautiful sound, a beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. 
it required the singers to be very good because they had to be very skilled in keeping things under control, but all perfect execution. And when there was any sort of florid elements to it, you know, maybe some ornamentation, it had to be done just perfectly and precisely. Mm. We can look to uh, Chopin if we want to look at an analogy. Ah. Frederick Chopin was almost like a bel canto composer. Yeah. And in fact, Bellini and, and Chopin admired each other. And Bellini, we'll see later, was the master of bel canto. That's a great comparison or idea of, of Chopin, almost a slight indulgence to it. And this is this idea is still super alive and well today, For just to let people know. A lot of the studies that the singers were working on at this time, we still use, they're still in print at the thousands today because all brass players use these bel canto studies by Bordoni and others, which was what they were singing. And yeah, it's that's a great comparison. Now I'm thinking more of Chopin with it too. It helps to create the singing line. That's what we're trying to develop now is the singing line. Legato, a lot of times, you know, allowing the, um, the singer to have some rubato. Beautiful singing, a beautiful execution, and a beautiful experience. So a lot has happened in this classical period. We've seen it, a big growth of opera buffa. We see developments in things. We see almost too much development, and Gluck says, we got to calm down here for a minute. we got the bel canto style. Composers, Mozart, Gluck, um, Rossini, those are some of the big ones at this yes, time. Yes, correct. And who, what can we recommend specifically here for an opera or an aria? Well, if we go chronologically, uh, Gluck was a little bit earlier than Mozart. In fact, Mozart admired Gluck. Gluck wrote an uh, opera on the Orpheus legend, as we were talking about earlier, Orfeo et Eurydice. And the best-known aria from that opera is Che faro senza Eurydice. Mm -hmm. And we will hear a purity of sound, almost like what we were hearing back in the Renaissance, because Gluck wanted to reform and to have purity and to have the text and the music integral and of equal importance. So I would recommend that particular aria. That's very well known. Um, Mozart, once we get to Mozart, you know, there, there's just too many. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, but I would say if we're looking at Marriage of Figaro, which some people think is one of the greatest operas ever written, it's one of my personal favorites, there are some poignant moments to it, even though it's a comedy. The Countess sings a beautiful aria called Porgi Amor, where she's talking about where did the, where did the love go that my husband had? What, where did my husband's love go that he had for me because he knows that she's in, he's kind of you know fooling around a little bit but it's a beautiful aria um, he also has a very humorous and clever reconciliation quartet where four people sort of reconcile as to who their real identities are yeah mozart wrote very cleverly it's a funny it's a funny um, scene but i also have to give credit to his librettist by the name of lorenzo da ponte who was a wonderful librettist, just ideal. And he and Mozart collaborated on three operas, three of Mozart's best operas, actually, we might say. And so uh, Lorenzo da Ponte really helped to propel some of these, these scenes so beautifully for Mozart. And I want to mention one thing, Linda, to show how far we've actually come. When you think about the early operas by, by Perry and everything's kind of tied to vocal parts, the dedication and purity of the text. They're all kind of playing these parts moving together. Now we have a quartet. It's four singers. They're singing totally different lines, right? I mean, you get now quartets where everyone is singing totally different lines. There's no purity to the text. You can't understand quite what's happening besides a few words if you know Italian. But that's just to say we've gone quite a far away from everyone is just doing the same thing to now it's almost chaos. Exactly, because in this reconciliation scene, it's a conversation among four people, and they're finding out who their real identities are. 
and they're saying, you? Really? You? You're her mother? You're, you're his mother? You know, it's, so it's a conversation now. So we're not singing, we don't have four people singing together necessarily. And lastly, from this period of the classical era, we have Mozart's Don Giovanni, which some consider to be the greatest opera ever composed. It's based on the Don Juan legend. Why is it the greatest opera ever composed? Because now we're having heightened music, larger orchestration, more drama, um, brilliant ensemble pieces, drama mixed with comedy. It also foreshadowed romanticism, which is going to come later in the 19th century, uh, because the orchestration was larger, but also because we have as our main character in Don Giovanni a romantic figure. By romantic, I mean romantic in the sense that he was an individual fighting against society. He did not have an interest in blending in. He was rebelling against authority. And the character of Don Giovanni actually does rebel. At the end, he does not even agree to repent his ways, even though he's threatened to burn in hell. So I think that's a great punctuation mark to this particular era, Don Giovanni. And speaking of 19th century, I think we're headed there next, Linda, so we're all in our time machine. And after this quick break, we'll meet everyone else on the other side. Okay, Linda, now where and when are we? What's happening? Well, we've moved now to the Romantic era of the 19th century. And it seems like this is where things take off in all kinds of directions, much in the same way as the symphony. We see the symphony develop. It gets um, refined in the classical period. And then after Beethoven in the 19th century, everyone starts taking it in um, in a different direction. So we see a lot of traditions and practices taking hold here as well as it gets firmly rooted in all these different countries. An example of that would be the Paris Opera, where if you wanted your opera played, I think you it was required that you had ballet sections in your opera. I think Verdi, even years after writing an opera, had to go back and write in a ballet section just so they would even play it. That's correct. So we're seeing an expansion and a development, as you said, um, that somewhat mirrors the romantic music that we heard with our, our instrumentalists. So what is, what's different about this time period, the characteristics and, and, the, and the style? I would say more drama larger orchestration, more emotion now by our characters, freely structured, anything pretty much goes now. The arias are larger and more difficult to perform, and the orchestra, the, the orchestral parts are more difficult to perform. Yes, there are a lot of difficult parts within the orchestra. It's getting bigger, there's more instruments, like the tuba is now being added as well. So there is just a huge wide variety of sounds and things that composers can either recreate or introduce into the music. And the subject matter changes a bit as well with uh, Verismo. Now we have more real life situations being depicted in the music. Maybe something we would more identify with than the gods and, and stuff on stage. Yes, we did see some of the real life people starting to enter in on during Mozart's era, during the 18th century. But now, maybe a little bit more gritty, a little bit more gruesome struggles now of real life people. Mm -hmm. Romantic struggles too. Yes, and it's a thing to also remember. Opera is, the content is not, you know, PG necessarily. <laughs> I think there's sometimes that misunderstanding. I mean, of course, it's in a different language and it's it's being sung. But some, sometimes, and especially in this period, there's very real, graphic, difficult things being depicted or worked out within the music. Yes. The French are, they are obsessed with opera in the 19th century. So much so, symphonies aren't really getting 
much traction or played. It's like, you have a symphony? I don't care. Go to Germany. You know, this is France. We're, we're doing opera. And it was just, it really, really, really took hold in France. And wonderful composers, Gounod and Massenet and uh, Bizet, just to name a few. Yes. Now, someone we've mentioned a couple of times, and it's it's impossible to get through opera without going through the wall that would be Richard Wagner and how much he just absolutely changed like Beethoven did with the symphony. We could do a whole podcast just on Richard Wagner alone. A series. Yeah, (laughs) a series. He did bring innovation starting with his middle era operas, almost as we saw with Gluck. He started to believe that music and text were integral. They were of equal importance, and so they should work together. It shouldn't be a a scenario where we have a singer showing off her beautiful voice or his beautiful voice accompanied by some nice music. No, now the music and the text worked together with with Wagner. He also brought into um, a style through composing, which means that there was uninterrupted music. We no longer now have arias that end and everybody applauds and then they go on to the next thing, maybe recitative, and then another aria. No, everything now with Wagner was through composed. We have uninterrupted music so that there were um, no breaks and no repetition, as we hear sometimes in you know common songs where we repeat a verse. No, no, because now we're having the characters almost speaking through music. Yes. That is the biggest change, I think, this through composing where it's all written fluidly throughout because before we've not mentioned it but it's you you hear it when you when you hear it things start and stop start and stop this happened and then that happened and then this happened and then that happened and with Wagner it is you know it's a three four hour you know film that you're uh, and actually the these are incredibly long too don't be too daunted by that you know right. you can you can pause it but they they are very long they are through composed mm-hmm. and He's also writing his own librettos. He's writing the text himself, which most normal people would say, yeah, you probably shouldn't do that. Have someone else do that. But Wagner did it all himself. He considered it a complete work of art. He called it, and I will probably not say this correctly, but Gesamtkunstwerk. Gesamtkunstwerk. Okay, thank you. Which means it's a complete work of art. The text, the poetry, the music, everything— and it's intended for audiences to experience communally. You know, we were talking about through composing and, and how he wanted to create sort of a natural mm-hmm. setting, like with, with people speaking. Yeah. And so there wouldn't be stopping and starting. Also, he, he wasn't big on choruses for that reason, because he didn't he thought, well, in real life, you don't have a chorus sitting there singing behind you, you know. And even as some of his operas are huge in scale in terms of the the content and the depth which he takes the music. Like Tristan und Isolde, there might only be a few singers. It's not a, a huge, long cast of, of singers with all of these different parts. And extremely taxing for singers to, to get through Wagner operas. Extremely taxing. Um, one of the other things that he introduced was uh, the use of leitmotifs. Yes. Which he wasn't the first one to do that, but he really expanded on it. So what he would do is have a, a music, maybe just a phrase, maybe just a very short phrase, that would represent certain things. He would continually bring back on a repetitive basis within the opera so that we as listeners would understand, oh, okay, now the character is thinking about that object because the music that represents that object is being played. Yes. The easiest way to think about this is is just Star Wars. You know, there's that's filled with leitmotifs. You hear Princess Leia's theme or, or that tune, and you hear it come into the movie 
at different points. And Wagner, he takes it to an absurd level, really, where there's there's hundreds of references, and sometimes they might only be a bar long within one part, and you can't even hear it. But I guess it's with that whole complete mindset that he has that, you know, there's all these little bits in there. But that's what's happening. And you can hear, like you said, you know, these little motifs or moments that represent things and it prompts you or, or puts you in the right mood or mind frame when you hear that again, oh no, something's about to happen or maybe something good. Yes. Uh, for example, in his ring cycle, he has a motif uh, of a sword. This is just one of many. Mm-hmm. But so when we get to the action where the character is going to draw his sword, all of a sudden you'll hear that motif. But sometimes he doesn't make it that obvious. Sometimes he'll, he'll sort of bury it, you know, just do it very subtly in the orchestra. But you hear it, um, you know, subliminally. A lot of Wagner talk there for this time period <laughs> because Wagner, I mean, he he's sucking the oxygen um, out of the room. But your favorite romantic composers, um, Tchaikovsky, Bizet, Verdi, they are writing um, also incredible operas at this time. Yes, we were talking about bel canto earlier. Bellini was the master of bel canto. He didn't have a long life, but he wrote some beautiful uh, operas. And I would say the prime example of bel canto would be from his opera Norma. Probably the best-known aria in there is Casta Diva. So if you want to hear an example of bel canto, I would say go to YouTube or wherever you get your, your, your listening pleasure and listen to a beautiful soprano voice singing Costa Diva. And we're actually going to put on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org um, some of these there as well with either maybe a playlist or videos, whatever we can um, put there. So that is, uh, that is a great one, Costa Diva. It is. Now, we also have to talk about Verdi. Verdi was a major force during mm-hmm. this time. He was born around the same time as, Ver- as Wagner, but he had a different idea as to uh, how to project opera. Verdi was Italian. Wagner was German. Wagner wanted to, to draw on German myth and Norse myth mm-hmm. as his subject, so he kind of went back to that sort of heroic mythological subject that we saw early on with opera seria, mm-hmm. and Wagner's were written and sung in German. Verdi, on the other hand, looked at plays about human beings and the human struggles, almost like almost like Verismo, and um, wrote operas in Italian. What was what is standout, I think, about Verdi in this era is how he was able to write music that really showed that that character, that human quality mm. of the character and what they were going through at any particular point in the opera. He had a real, real great gift for that. What can we recommend specifically for an opera and an aria here? Well, I, for, from Verdi, from La Traviata, one of the best-known arias there is simply Libra. Also from Aida, Celeste Aida, where the um, the main male character comes out and sings his love for um, Aida. That's a story of forbidden love between members of warring factions. Very mm. dramatic, grand, grand opera, Aida. Okay, so the romantic period... Things go in all these different directions with um, composers doing their own things, especially Wagner. He is the one who's uh, changing the game here. So we can get back in our time machine, Linda, for just another stop here. Let's head to the late 19th and the early 20th century. Okay, this is 
This is where things get interesting to me, Linda, because for all the previous time periods, if I just told you, Linda, you know, lover of opera, if I just mentioned Baroque opera, you would already have a sound in your head. Oh, yeah, I know. I know what that sounds like. Mm-hmm. But if I mention 20th century opera, mm. I, am, I, am I actually telling you that much? Probably not. No. These composers have such extraordinarily different sounds as everyone takes things in many, many, many different directions with, I mean, so much in arts and culture of the 20th century. It's more accurate or better for me to say, hey, think of an opera by Puccini or Debussy or even Philip Glass. Three composers from this century with completely different sounds. Yes, and once again, as we've noticed in other eras, the opera music sort of um, is reflecting what is going on with instrumental music during that era, and that is greater experimentation, greater liberties. And also, like the symphony, there's kind of a decline in popularity, it seems like, in this time period compared to before, I think, right? I imagine there's not as many governments putting on these operas. They are extremely expensive to produce. We had two world wars um, a lot happened. Yes, the sets were getting getting expensive. Um, singers now were getting expensive because now we're getting into very virtuosic singing, and you have to have very skilled singers, and sometimes those are a little bit more expensive. So if, if we're talking about ideas from this era, we might look at, if we look at Puccini, for example, who was a major composer from this era, it was almost with him can see an outgrowth of both bel canto because it was beautiful melodies that he wrote but also of through composing that we were starting to see with wagner yeah so puccini will also have sort of a endless stream sort of a, an uninterrupted stream of music as the as the singers are singing and projecting the narrative forward you know instead of just aria break aria break also, he was um, a wonderful orchestrator, and some of his orchestration is very luminescent. And so when he's projecting, say, for example, um, lovers in very tender scenes that we see in Love O.M., the music is just perfect for that, very tender and luminescent. Puccini feels like a real holdover from the last century in terms of like, in terms of how he's really getting into and presenting opera compared to um, later on what we see in the in the 20th century. Benjamin Britten, another composer too of opera at this time. Yes, Benjamin Britten was well known for his emphasis on word and his real great gift for using word with the music to project the narrative. And I know we've heard that before, but he had a real gift for being able to, to put words together very concisely and to project them in, in really unique um, phrases of music. I recommend for Benjamin Britten listening to um, Peter Grimes. I mean, he wrote a number of operas, but, but Peter Grimes is just uh, extraordinary. And even just the, the, the interludes, the musical interludes that he used in Peter Grimes are really extraordinary. So there's not all that much to say, I think, about this time period. Composers, they take it in their individual directions. We had a lot of interruptions with um, world wars, Mm -hmm. um, stopping everything in Europe for years. Shall we get back into our time machine and head to the present? Yes. So we are back home. We are in today, the present time, whatever time it is that you're listening to this. 
As we mentioned, opera is very difficult and expensive to put on. And so for the last couple of decades, um, in this century, I was I was actually, Linda, looking at to, well, who's composed the most operas recently? You know, what's who's composing the most right now? Kaya Sarayaho, she composed six operas between the year 2000 and then this year when she passed away in June. Another composer, John Adams, also wrote six operas and a couple of, you know, large oratorio opera type works and he, he probably still has another uh, couple left in him so mm-hmm. those are two composers who are right i always forget yeah they wrote they're writing a lot of opera and uh but it is very expensive so it's these big opera houses that are able to commission big composers like sarayaho and adams but we also see shorter operas coming into fruition they're cheaper the more feasible to put on. The Washington National Opera this year, Linda, has a performance where they're doing, in one night, uh, it's three one-act operas by different composers. Yeah, so. the American Initiatives. Yeah, yes. it, A lot of these uh, operas from the 20th century and beyond and in our era are addressing social issues, so we don't mm-hmm. see the themes anymore based on you know the old Greek mythology yeah. or poking fun at nobility like we saw during Mozart's era. Mm-hmm. A lot of these now are addressing social issues or just even addressing a current events. So like you were talking about John Adams, Nixon in China is yeah. a staple. Uh, you know, that was that was projecting a, um, a an event that happened yeah. with Nixon. Um, Dr. Atomic and uh, Jake Heggie will be having a dead man walking, his dead man walking mm-hmm. at the Met in this coming season, which we will hear on WETA in the broadcast. And Terrence Blanchard is doing some things, too, that, that address social issues. So that that's one of the themes, I think, one of the hallmarks of current opera. Yes. And opera has always been looking at and addressing issues kind of from the beginning, sometimes surreptitiously, composers doing things in the music to undermine uh, maybe certain ideals or, or, or customs mm-hmm. to, to now what we're examining. There's always been drama. There's always been controversy. Back in the day, they had to deal with censors. Your opera may get banned. I mean, you could. I mean, people. You people would actually go to jail for some things <laughs> like that for a night back in the day, as we heard with uh, with some composers. So, the Met is a great resource for well, every Saturday afternoon coming up um, at one o'clock, probably on a radio station near you, you can hear these operas. I would recommend to our listeners that if they want to jump in, or maybe even if they are familiar with opera and they want to learn a little bit more about it, to look online and get a libretto Mm -hmm. for a particular opera. Then they can follow along every word that is being sung and in the translation, in the English translation. You really get a heightened experience that way, and you understand what they're saying. Okay, that's great. I'll I'll try to put something on the show notes page, linking directly maybe to one or or a resource for that. And my advice would be is you know if you if you're listening to something opera and you, I just don't like this, well just stop listening to it. I mean there you go, <laughs> and then just find something else. We're talking about centuries and centuries of an unimaginable amount of music here. You're going to find something. You might just start with your favorite composer and see if they wrote an opera, right? Um, and you may have never heard it, and you are. You're going to find something you love no matter what if you dig into opera. There's also always Nessun Dorma by yes. Puccini. Start with that. There's always that. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for enlightening me on all things opera. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. You can send me comments and episode ideas to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review in your podcast app. I'm John Panther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. <laughs>